recorded live from the lobby of the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. So it's been a few weeks since the last episode of Junctional Thinking, the podcast, and um, there have been a lot of people asking me, when are you getting back into the virtual studio to do something? Um, And to be honest with you, the last six weeks or so have been difficult, to put it lightly. It's been very challenging for me to not be... um, infuriated by a couple different things. One, with respect to the nation's, the the U.S. response to COVID, um, our premature reopening, and the fact that there is the degree of um, dissent that there is and disrespect for science, and people's desire to get out of their homes is overriding their desire to be protective of each other. And then the issues related to the deaths of Breonna Taylor, Aubrey Ahmad, Ahmad Aubrey, sorry, um, George Floyd, and others um, that have brought to a, an unfortunately um, volcanic point of eruption sentiment related to race, racism, inequity, injustice from a law enforcement perspective and also from a community perspective, some of which impacts health and social outcomes, which is where, as you know, as listeners to the Johnson Thinking podcast, we re- we live at those intersections in this podcast. And so it's a very timely conversation. And I'm really fortunate and blessed to be joined by two gentlemen today who, first and foremost, I have to say, are strong, strong, strong men in their own rights with respect to their own spheres of influence and operation. We are all members of a very, very illustrious organization, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, which is another reason why I may end up calling this the black and gold edition. (laughs) But (laughs) the gentleman who I have with me today, uh, joining me today are uh, Curtis Bunn and Nolan Rollins. And so I want to have them introduce themselves to sort of talk to you a bit about who they are so that you can understand where they're coming from. Before I do that, though, I have to give a shout out to Full Service Radio and Jack Inslee in the background for continuing to, to hold this down, um, even given the pressures that have that have no doubt caused some some challenges for him and this operation. So thank you, Jack, for, for being there in the background and for, for keeping this, this ship running. But um, Curtis and Nolan, thank you both for agreeing to be on the show today. And uh, Curtis, if I could, if I could start with you, you sort of a little bit about yourself and uh, how you come to this conversation um, in 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 any any of your roles, because I think you have a few. As as does Nolan. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Doctor Vigilance. It's a, it's an honor. Um, I'm from Washington D.C. Grew up in Southeast Anacostia, right off of Suitland Parkway and Stanton Road. I live in Atlanta now, and I'm a journalist. I've been doing this for several decades now, which seems odd to say, but I've worked in D.C. I've worked in New York for 11 years. I've worked in Atlanta since 1996, covering a variety of things from uh, race and sports, primarily sports, 
but most recently I've had the most rewarding journalism experiences of, of my career, uh, writing about history in real time with COVID-19 and how it impacts African-American and other underserved communities. And of course, the demonstrations for racial justice. Um, it's been very rewarding. And that's how we came to, I, how we connected and how I came to be here through talking to you about this subject on, on both fronts, COVID-19 and, and the demonstrations. And and so, it, you know, it's a, it's a time in my life and I guess all of our lives that we'll always remember. And to get to chronicle it for NBC News over the last several months has been something that I'm gratified by. And I'll be able to look back on it at a time, hopefully at a time when we're clear of all of this stuff and feeling better about the world and say I had a small hand in, in at least letting people know how things were playing out. Right. No, that's, 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 that's powerful because I think that, that written word is something that uh, we definitely are going to be turning back to and many people are turning to that right now. Um, Nolan, uh, if you could uh, just tell us a bit about your illustrious background and, and what brings you to this conversation. Well, uh, again, I would also just like to thank you for the opportunity to spend some time with uh, two brothers I respect and also um, kind of get a message out there. I think I come to this conversation being a Baltimore boy. And uh, frankly, Dr. Vigilance and I uh, were part of the group that actually started the Urban League Young Professionals in Baltimore. So um, from a very civic minded position. Um, to also um, an economic driven, from also an economic driven position. I currently uh, am the CEO of a technology company called Smart Mouth and also the CEO of a uh, organization called Power Moves USA that actually identifies and supports uh, entrepreneurs of color around the nation. Um, at the same time, my um, uh, past is one where I was the president of the National Urban League Young Professionals and Sat on the National Urban League's board. I had um, 10 chap, 10, 67 chapters around the nation, 10,000 members, and went on to be the uh, president and CEO of the Urban League in New Orleans post-Katrina to help rebuild there and the chairman of the airport at that time. And then uh, No Good Deed Goes Unpunished. I then was sent out to L.A., where I live now, to be the CEO of the Urban League uh, of Los Angeles. And now I find myself in the kind of venture capital space in the technology space, but being drawn um, daily back to the space that is my core and that social justice economic opportunity and the work that, that we did when we were, we were just pups coming into, um, to, into our own, both professionally and in a civic minded. So I think I come to this with this interesting blend of, of market and civic realities at the same time. And I think that that's, thank you both for, for those intros. And I think that to what you just said, Nolan, about the, the, the market reality, I think is something that we don't necessarily always talk about. We talk about patience um, with respect to COVID and who's impacted by this and cases and people, things become sort of inanimate to some extent, but we're, really, we're, talking, we're talking about people and people who interact in particular ways with particular things uh, that we call life. And that living is what has been so significantly disrupted by COVID 
with particular disruption happening on the morbidity and mortality side, meaning people getting sick and people dying in the African-American community. And, you know, as, as you have looked at this and talked to a number of people, Curtis, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, you've talked to a lot of different people about this over the last few months. What what has been sort of the most striking thing to you about that piece of data relating to impact on the African American community? What has what has been most surprising to you from your perspective? Because you don't come out of a public health background or space, so how has this information struck you as being wow? I did I had no idea that that was like that. Well, I think let's go back to when there was the onset of the coronavirus. There was this, in the parlance of the African-American community, they were jokingly saying the Rona, the Rona is going to get you. It can't get, it can't get us because we, the rumors were that it did not impact African-American people. I mean, I don't know if you heard it, but I know in Atlanta, there was so much discussion and around, around the country because we weren't actually seeing those, the victims or the patients who were stricken with coronavirus. And so the rumor began that, oh, this is not something that will impact us. And so when it became a couple of weeks later, when it, they started distributing the numbers and indicating that we, in fact, are disproportionately being uh, contracting this virus, it was a blow to the jokesters, but it was also s- sort of stunning when you contrast the, the actual position in the beginning, thinking that we were somehow be- believing that we were immune to this and then actually finding out that we were uh, stricken more than any other um, race. It was a real, those are the two extreme ends uh, of this thing. And so it's been an education for me and I think for everyone particularly when you learn that we are because of these health disparities that these health issues that are inherent in us based on race race uh, issues and concerns, uh, lack of proper health care, uh, for one, food deserts and so on and so forth, that we have these underlying conditions of high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, that feed the disease, so to speak. So that's been obviously, I think for me, the thing that was shocking. Uh, intuitively, I understood that we have these conditions. I've written about food deserts and I've talked to health, public health experts in the past about the disparities in, in, uh, in health care. <clears throat> Excuse me. But to learn that we were in this pandemic seemingly the biggest targets was really an eye-opener for me. And it's one that I think we probably over time took it seriously. And now I think we're, we're kind of fading away from that. Speaking to what you, you you alluded to earlier about this whole impatience now to get back into the world, so I think it was an illuminating, frustrating, sad um, acknowledgement when I learned that that we were just you know, we represent almost I guess thirteen percent of the population, and and so much more of the cases of COVID nineteen. It was it was very alarming. Right, right, and Nolan, as you as you reflect on some of what. Curtis was just referring to with respect to sort of the, the, that these outcomes are kind of more socially driven even than medically driven. And we start talking about some of the, 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 uh, the, the drivers, the economic drivers of uh, 
poor community well-being, period, be that financial, development, um, health, etc. What has been most striking to you about what has come forth as a result of COVID from some of those more maybe fiscally oriented um, perspectives? You know, I think what's striking to me is that there's there's a consistency in the American uh, the the American conversation for African Americans that goes way back to the days when we were actually first brought here, and that consistency has been that we always find ourselves on the underside of every challenge, and even on the underside of everything that even remotely looks like an opportunity. And I think we're just seeing it again. I mean, there's 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 unfortunately nothing new under the sun when we look at these underlying problems that we actually have, whether it be health problems. Um, These health problems are directly linked to economic problems. Those economic problems are directly linked to educational problems. So when we think about the the African-American existence in America, there can be no wonder as to why we wind up on the bottom of every single rung, because everything that we actually find ourselves in, whether it be housing, health, finance, education, the list goes on. We always find ourselves at the bottom of the room. We always find ourselves creating this soul food out of whatever leftover scraps are there. And for us to ever think that we can build a long-term sustainable community on something like that is for us to build our community on quicksand. So we quickly sink into the sand every single time an issue happens. So Whether it be Corona, we sink into the sand. The flu, we sink into the sand. The markets tank, we sink into the sand. And more often than not, we aren't in the position of the levers of control to even make an impact on that. The reality is, listen, again, nothing new is under, under the sun. And what we're watching again is we're watching kind of the market in our in our society contract again. What is going to happen? So we we go through this time where everything is decentralized. So we have startups here, opportunities there, opportunities there, people disrupting everything here or there. What we're now seeing is with everything happening with Corona, with everything happening uh, from 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 media to finance, things are starting to centralize now. And when things start to centralize, the control goes into fewer hands again. So the things that really concern me from a health vantage point from a finance vantage point, is this centralization that's going to happen. Mark my words, there will be three, maybe four very specific areas that will control this country going forward. It will be finance, it will be technology, it will be media. And I would argue because of what's happening right now with COVID and 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 and, and what's happening in, in our in, in our society and quite frankly in the world, health is going to be another huge area of play. So if we as a community aren't thinking strategically about those areas and how to be impactful in those areas, we're going to find ourselves in the underbelly once again. And I just think we at some point, we as kind of the learned individuals in our community should say we've seen this play before. We're no longer going to sing the old Negro spirituals of we shall overcome someday. We, we were talking a little earlier about the amount of money that, you know, we've actually put into our education. So we should be thinking more critically and challenging these levers of power more critically around what it's going to take for us to make sure that we're actually living this American dream. And I just think that I don't know that we've seen in our existence in this country 
a better opportunity to push a true agenda. I think that's very, very well said. And I appreciate you laying out those four areas that you see as being pivotal spaces in which to sort of where the market will contract into, if you will, sort of finance, technology, media, and and the health piece. And for the longest time on, you know, it has been our commentary on this podcast that, you know, health is more social than it is medical. And that is not to say that the medical pieces and the healthcare delivery pieces are not critical and are not hugely important with respect to what happens with respect to your health, but it is an end point, if you will. It is a point at which you have to engage with the health system in order to actually be part of health care. Uh, whereas um, you may not be engaging with the health system in that same way if you are of a particular income level based on the fact that you're of a particular education level, based on the fact that you have particular skills that put you in uh, harm's way, potentially, or don't. And so the contraction that you're referring to as it relates to who's getting sick can be seen as being, well, how the sicker people tend to be folks who don't necessarily have access to um, the jobs that allow them to work remotely. You cannot work remotely as a bus driver. You cannot work remotely as a childcare provider. You cannot work remotely as a person who is required to be doing some hands-on thing somewhere. But if you are part of the intellectual economy, in quotation marks, then you can work remotely. You can do things from a distance, um, and therefore, in this instance, safely. But there is definitely some a disparity with respect to who traditionally has gotten where. And I think that when we come back in a couple minutes, I'd like to talk to both of you about sort of what the future looks like, because there's some interesting data out there about the future of work, particularly the future of work in the black community, and what that means with respect to this contraction of economies that you were referring to, Nolan, and what that means with respect to the history in real time that you referred to, Curtis, that we will be getting into. So we'll be back in just a couple minutes after this short break, and we'll see you then. So welcome back. Uh, once again, you are listening to Junctional Thinking, the podcast on full service radio, broadcasting from three different locations, actually four today. My name is Pierre Vigilance. I'm your host. And uh, I am in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We have with me today Nolan Rollins, who is uh, CEO of Smart Mouth and also uh, CEO of the company, and I have it down here, Power Moves USA, um, at, based out in LA, and uh, Curtis Bunn, who is in Atlanta, Georgia, um, a journalist uh, from DC originally, uh, but he writes now for NBC and does some other literary work across the country. Um, we've been having a great conversation about the things that surprised these gentlemen about um, about COVID and and what's been going on. And I wanted to pivot um, for a quick second to talk a little bit about this um, piece that was uh, published by McKinsey. I think this came out at the end of last year. I just want to make sure. Yeah, October 2019. So pre-COVID. 
and it's uh, about understanding the 2030 risk for African Americans with respect to the future of work. And a quote from that is, given that African-American workers face a significant amount of risk from the rise of automated technologies in the workplace, and in an effort to identify the most targeted and effective interventions, we analyze the range of relevant factors, including occupations that are most at risk for automation, job growth, and decline in the United States. And very, very interesting stuff about the fact that African Americans are underrepresented in what are considered low displacement jobs and overrepresented in high expected displacement jobs. So, high expected displacement jobs are office support, food services, or production work, and low expectation displacement jobs are educator and workforce training, creative and arts management, health professions, business and legal, and property maintenance and agriculture. This article is available online um, on mckinsey.com. And I wanted to see, based on the breadth of experience that both of you have in the conversations and your own work related to what's happening now and what's happening down the road. If you could talk for a second about, and and Curtis, I don't know if you have an angle on any of this. uh, How do you see um, what you're going to be writing about changing going forward if we don't impact some of these future of work type conversations that are highlighted in this McKinsey article. So if we're not fixing some of the education piece, if we're not putting ourselves in a better position to be in these low expectation displacement positions, then what are you going to be writing about and how does this potentially change? Uh, Quite interesting question. I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said, "In an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. And so it makes me think about when I when I'm listening to your question, it makes me think about all this money that is being poured in now as it relates to the the demonstrations and this quest for equal justice. You know, of course, equal justice justice includes this whole educational education gap that is not getting closer, it's actually widening over the most recent years. And so Michael Jordan has committed a hundred million dollars, Pepsi, all these corporations are committing millions and millions of dollars to, quote unquote, close the racial injustice gap. Well, what are we going to do with that money? How much of that money is going to be spent toward education? Because when you, it sounds like you're throwing money at the problem if there's no real specific area in which you're going to address. Throwing money at the problem can work, though, if you use it to enhance public schools, to uh, make sure the schools, I mean, um, Nolan's from Baltimore. I remember reading a year or two ago about students who, uh, didn't have heat in the classroom and they didn't have books for the students. That kind of stuff shouldn't happen in America. And so this this is a sort of like a, this whole movement is a clarion call for everyone to, spur, I think, focus specifically first on education because when you start talking about the future, these are the kids who are in school who are going to be getting into the workforce. And like Nolan also said, everything, nothing changes under the sun. You, you just laid out those projections from the McKinsey Report. We're on the bottom end of those projections, as always. So they're projecting out another 10 years, and we're still where we are at the bottom. And so the only way for me, in my mind, for us to make some progress in that area and to not be to get, lose jobs to automation, and in fact, to be a part of the, the, the revolution or the technological advancement, is that we 
pour money into education, uh, public education. I'm a product of public education in Washington, D.C. It's amazing that it was better 45 years ago than it is now in certain places. So, Wesley, I think that's what we need to be writing. I know I'm going to focus on, okay, you've gotten all this money, Black Lives Matter, other organizations. What are you doing with it? And how much are you investing in education so that we won't, so we can, so we can close that gap? Good, good. And so hearing that, Nolan, and given your background in community education, community empowerment, and actually now you're well positioned to speak about this from the future of work perspective, because you yourself are a tech company, you know, executive. Um, Is education enough? Not to disagree with, with Curtis about this, but is education enough? And are we thinking about education the right way or should we be thinking about it differently? And let me, let me explain the question. We hear continuously about the question of the value of the college degree. Now, before anybody out there starts throwing Molotov cocktails at me, I live in a bulletproof and flame proof building. So throw them because the, the reality of the situation is that there are major question marks about whether or not the traditional four-year college degree actually brings you a valuable outcome at the end. It's out there. Don't want to necessarily debate that right now. But certificates and certificate programs, specifically for the, in the tech space, can have some significant return on investment. Nolan, your thinking with respect to the future of work, what Curtis was referring to, and whether or not specifically in tech, as one of those four pillars that you outlined before, we need to be thinking traditional education or non-traditional education. And I definitely appreciate the question. So when you think about the technology space, everything in technology is about disrupting um, the existing status quo. And everything in the disruptive kind of arena is really about how do you think past what's happening right now? So it's an intellectual conversation about what the future is going to look like. So I absolutely believe that education is critical. What's even as important is what are we teaching? Because the truth is this kind of looking backward educational space is not going to help folks move forward. So if we're actually having the, you know, a same conversation in our schools about reading, writing, and arithmetic, those are not going to be the things without the critical thought put inside of them that are going to dictate what the next mark, the next uh, opportunities are going to be in our market. That's the one piece. The other piece is I think we have to be careful because the time that I spend with these these cats in this who are in this disruptive technology space, the thing that they have that we do not have are relationships that can actually help bolster what it is they're trying to do. They have parents who are who give them twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to start their first business. That one fails. They give them twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to start their next. So what I don't want to do is I don't want us to think because um, uh, Zuckerberg or any of these guys dropped out of college that the answer is to go to college for a little bit, drop out and then build a billion dollar tech company. That the likelihood of that happening for us, we don't we just won't see it just being very candid. So I think education is a is, is key, but critically thinking about what education is going to look like. 
making sure that we're focusing our our young folks in these directions that where where there's going to be a need in the future. There has to be a need in the future. And, and the truth is, the more disruptive that we get with our economy, the fewer people we are going to need to drive the economy. If we know that's the fact, then we will be doing two things. We will be gearing people toward the economies and the needs that are, are, are there. That's going to be a knowledge need. Or, and or, we're going to be talking to them about entrepreneurship, creating your own, deciding what is going to be needed. Because here's the, the, the truth. The truth is the opportunity that exists in our community to solve our problems is uncharted territory. It's like walking on Mars, because the truth is that most of the folks who are in this disruptive economy aren't really ready to move into that space. So that's why you see brothers who are who are um, organizing around um, cutting hair and barber shops and things like that and creating this online platform are doing well. We've been getting our hair cut forever, but it's because these brothers aren't afraid to actually figure out how to work with barber shops that their that their entrepreneurial dream is coming true. So I think we've got to be really um, specific about how we're talking about what the future looks like. We were having these conversations before, pre uh, COVID about workforce, what it looks like, start pushing companies to onshore again. Well, the truth was we were never in, and when I say we, African-Americans were never in the game plan with that onshoring. We just weren't. So we shouldn't pretend like we're in the game plan going forward. And that's why, for me, if we don't have very specific ways we're thinking about education, very specific ways we're thinking about entrepreneurship, the money that is being sent, put in the pot right now, will be the money that the country looks at 10 years from now and says, well, we gave you $100 million. We gave you $250 million. We gave you. So if we aren't smart about, to Curtis's point, if we aren't smart about how this money is spent, we will be our own worst enemies and we will have lost an opportunity to make the American dream more of a reality than the nightmare that we have been living in existence as we for African-Americans in this country. Your, your comments, both of your comments, but just what you just said, Nolan, actually reminds me of... Um, the need for specificity, right? So to say education is true, to say education in particular or specific sectors and places makes it makes it more more true. And how and the what uh, it happens. I remember uh, there was conversation that I had a few years ago when I was first introduced to human centered design. And this is actually a this is for the public health academic institutions out there and and um and i think we have a few who listen in and i know a lot of former students and current students listen who are from that space push for the things that are showing up on applications to be what's brought into the classroom what i mean by that is if if multinational corporations are asking for human-centered design skills, but your school doesn't provide you with a human-centered design course, or you don't even know what human-centered design is, change your lane. <laughs> Figure out where to get that information from, because otherwise you won't be in play when that application comes your way. You won't be able to apply for it because you won't have that skill set. Similarly, conversations that I have with people around this infamous thing called blockchain, People are very much about, well, what is that? Isn't that cryptocurrency? No, it's a lot more than that. Distributed ledger technology has the potential to disrupt 
to use Nolan's word, significantly a number of different sectors, but public health is one of those spaces where it could be particularly useful, but many people in public health are not trying to bone up on where that is. It's about playing where the ball, puck, or whatever it is that you throw is going, not necessarily where you necessarily think it might be going. You have to sort of move to intercept, and that's what we're not necessarily doing. We haven't talked about this particular thing to this point, and I think we we need to, as we round out our conversation, get to this issue of um, not being in the game plan and the the treatment specifically of um, African Americans and Black Americans in this country um, by different institutions. Because I think we've been talking about education, we've been talking about finance, we haven't talked much about law enforcement, um, and we haven't talked much about sort of public safety, but it's it's a major piece, and we have an election coming up in November that could impact that. Curtis, as you do your conversations with people, could you just very quickly sort of give your two cents on whether or not the shadow operation that came out to vote for the current occupant of the White House is 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 still one that is of significant concern given all these other things that have raised the attention of other people or are we at risk again come November for some more um, challenges to put it lightly and then the same question to you Nolan I think 2016 showed us that we can never be comfortable never can be so sure all the polls all the commonsensical people I spoke to had no notion, no belief that Donald Trump could end up in the White House. I have a friend who lives in Ghana who called with concern. I said, don't worry about it. America isn't that stupid. Well, uh, I was proven incorrect. So although he has a checklist of issues that have uh, arisen under his uh, tutelage, under his leadership, quote unquote leadership, you can never feel too comfortable. So my, so my concern isn't necessarily about his constituency because I don't think that he's gained any new support. I think he's all he's done in his three, almost four years is cater to his base and try to fire them up and incite them to where they're even more radical than they than than they are. Uh, but I think he may have lost some, and I think he's also galvanized the other side. I think that the, those um, women, white women. 54% of the white women who voted for him in 2016 are looking at their children and looking at the world and looking at the demonstrations and are listening and understanding that things need to change, hopefully. They're looking at what's, what has happened in our horrific response to the coronavirus and, 100 and almost 130,000 deaths and so many more, hundreds of thousands, uh, millions, uh, I'm sorry, millions hospitalized. They're looking at this guy's inability unwillingness to try to even attempt to bring the country together. He can't say one conciliatory word about anything other than what he's promoting. They look at his Twitter feed and see that he's pushing divisive messages. I think he has galvanized the other side. And so even though I have many friends who say, I'm staying home, I'm being patient during COVID-19, I'm not going out, I'm going to go only when I have to go, I will stand in line on, in November to vote, and I will risk my health to get this guy out of office. I think all change starts right there, 
at least in terms of just healing the country and getting some sense of normalcy. It's been whatever the amount of days he's been in office, it's been that many days of upheaval and stress. And one of the things I've talked to, talked about to parents is the fear that they have, or it's just people in general, that the emotional trauma that comes with listening to him every day incites something that is never about bringing the country together. He, he has these, he's, I think one of the, I guess, attributes about the guy is that he understands his limitations in the sense that he won't even try because he's unable to do it. He he doesn't have the capacity to do it. So, you know, I'm not concerned about his side. I'm concerned about us getting out uh, and voting because we, we have to make a change there. And I think we'll all exhale and feel a lot better about ourselves and our lives once we get a new administration in, in the White House. Got you. Okay. Nola? Uh, so I think two two points on this. We have got to remember that black bodies are the economic currency for the prison, prison, uh, for the prison industrial complex. Always have been. And until we are, until we are, uh, are direct about changing that, we always will be. So when you hear him talking about law and order, when you hear him talking about he's the chief um, uh, cop for the country, that is dog whistle politics. Those are dog whistle signals that are saying, wait a minute, we have a criminal justice system that relies on this black fuel to keep it going. If we are doing what we need to do, that is going to crumble. And I can tell you this, I know a bunch of people with a, uh, with a bunch of access and a bunch of opportunity who look like us. I don't know anybody who's in that business. So the people who are in that business are making money hand over fist and have been making money hand over fist using the coal that are our black bodies to run that engine. So we have got to be honest with ourselves about what that looks like. That's number one. Number two Let's be honest. What this man represents is what black folks have been telling people about America from the beginning. He is just the epitome of it. He is just the first time that we get to say, look, we tried to tell you, but you would not us think that we, thinking that we were it was puffery, thinking that we were just over uh, thinking these things that, you know, we were people were out to get us. This is the God's honest truth. Donald Trump is what America created. It's just a fact. So because America can create a Donald Trump and more people are seeing what that looks like, America has to have, you'll appreciate this, brother, the, the, the protection for that virus. America has to have a serum for that virus. And that serum for that virus is happening in our streets every single day. That serum for that virus is, is taking the, the, the learned middle class black folk who have sat on the sidelines and not said much about anything because things were okay and pulled them out of their houses with their mortgage and got them in the streets too. So I think that right now, America is having a reckoning that we have not seen since the Civil War, that is going to decide what the future of this country is going to look like. I think the the true thing for us to do is to take this same energy all the way to the polls and through the polls, and as importantly, take it with a plan. Because the last thing that we need to do is to swing the pendulum all the way to the other side without a plan, and four years from now, four years from the election, 
everyone then says we're in no better position than we were when we made this change in, in last November. So I think that 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 we are we are we are looking at ourselves in the mirror as a country. Black folks are 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 being validated about what we've been saying forever and ever. And every Twitter, every Instagram video of a person who is taking their 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 democratic, seemingly democratic right to equality to the to the nth degree where they're not wearing a mask and infringing upon someone else's right. That's what democracy will get you. That's what unchecked democracy in a privileged society with a privileged people will get you. It will get you someone who believes that their rights should be able to encroach upon someone else's mm-hmm. right. Mm. So this is, I mean, uh, we, we are only ever on for under an hour with this show. Obviously, we could have a conversation that would go much, much, much longer. I think that it is important to recognize the power in this commentary about having a plan because we are very quick to um, criticize any administration that says they want to, for example, to take the current one, dismantle um, the Affordable Care Act, for example, uh, but has no plan uh, with with what to replace it with. and for people to be wanting to essentially dismantle it simply because history allowed for a black president to actually be successful in moving it forward as being people's primary reason for wanting to dismantle it, not because it's costing them anything other than good care, um, is you know amazing to me. But it is also telling with respect to the rhetoric and the the dog whistle politics that that you've referred to, Nolan. So I think that this is all very much um, not just food for thought, but food for feet and food for action. And and one of those actions that we've talked about and that we all are in agreement on is the action that happens in November with respect to voting. And in the meantime, actions as well that need to be taken with respect to personal and family safety, paying attention to the science that is out there from folks like Dr. Fauci and others with respect to mask wearing, social distancing, responsible um, interactions with family and friends, thinking about people other than ourselves and being mindful in our interactions just generally and then also being mindful in our consideration of our particular roles in any of this, regardless of our own race and ethnicity, gender identity, etc., because we all play a part somewhere in this country's current state of affairs. So it's um, it's really been a privilege to have both of you on the show to discuss this. I'm sorry we haven't had more time. You've been listening to the Junctional Thinking Podcast with my guest today, Nolan Rollins. Um, CEO of Power Moves USA and Smart Mouth out of LA, and uh, Curtis Bunn, journalist um, for NBC, who is uh, joining us today from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I'm your host, Pierre Vigilance, and I have really, really appreciated the opportunity to get back into the booth with uh, with these two gentlemen and with some upcoming content that um, is definitely designed to to get us moving in a direction that is forward and upward. And as we like to say in our illustrious organization, 
onward and upward. Um, so thank you, gentlemen, both of you, for being involved with the show today, for being on the show, for your thoughts, and I uh, very much appreciate you. And uh, to all the listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, share this unabashedly with friends and family because we need to move this conversation forward. Thank you both, gentlemen. Thank, thank you. you. It was great. Thanks very much. Now we will be back. You've been listening to John Snow Thinking, the podcast, broadcasting from a number of cities around the U.S. on full service radio. We will see you again next time.